Hi, everyone, and welcome to the San Francisco Business Times Structures Podcast, where we're digging into the news, policies, and trends in Bay Area real estate. I'm Kevin Trong, the multimedia producer here at the Business Times, and I'm here with our two real estate reporters, Blanca Torres and Roland Lee. Hello. Good Hi, to be everybody. Back. As Roland alluded to, we've been on a bit of an extended break, um, in large part due to some of our coverage of the North Bay fires, which you can see the fruits of that labor online and also in our October 20th print issue. But we're back with a jam-packed episode focused on the always top of mind issue of affordable housing. We're going to define what the term actually means, break down some of the background wonk in policy and financing, and try to explain why, even after pretty general consensus that cheaper housing needs to be built, housing prices in the Bay Area remains sky high and why affordable housing is so hard to build. But first, to catch up on some of the news since we've been off air, our segment New Developments, to discuss some of the recent uh, going-ons in the real estate market. First up is Dropbox's gigantic, humongous, other big words, um, lease in Kilroy Realty's under construction exchange um, development in Mission Bay. And the cloud storage company is taking 736,000 square feet in what ranks as the largest lease in San Francisco history. So let's first talk about kind of the aftershocks in the market. What's left now that, you know, the biggest lease in San Francisco history has been um, signed? Not very much. There's basically one tower left in Transbay, Park Tower, that has no tenants. Um, That's going to finish in the next year. After that, Oceanwide Center which won't be done until 2021. Um, but you know, after that, there's really you know, nothing on the horizon. Uh, the shipyard has 4 million square feet, but that isn't really designed yet, and that's still in the works. So if you're a big tech company looking to either grow or move into San Francisco, you have maybe like one big option left. And um, you know, people have been saying Prop M is kind of looming, and that is the annual cap on office approvals each year. So. I think by next year, that'll be a real issue for future projects, too. Well, I wonder who else is left out there um, in terms of the big tech companies. Yeah, you because have Facebook. Facebook did the big lease, Dropbox. Google has done a number of big leases. Amazon's done big leases. Like, who, who else is going to do a gigantic lease? I don't know. I mean, we always hear there's tons of big you know, tenants needing a more than 100,000 square feet. Park Tower is about 750,000. It's a pretty sizable building. Um, it's got a base that's bigger, so that there's bigger floor plates on the bottom, and then the tower part is like smaller floor plates. So, you know, they were originally thinking like one tenant could take the bottom, which was like 300,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. It'll be interesting because who hasn't done a what other tech company hasn't yeah, done a big lease? Left, you know? And, you know, is there a big tenant from another industry that's going to take a lot of space? I don't know. We haven't Wait, really non-tech? seen... non-tech? Yeah, like... <laughs> that well, exists while, in San Francisco? Like, well, there was, like, big fintechs for a while that mm-hmm. were doing some big leases, but I think that's kind of died down. So I, well, I don't know who else would need that kind of... So the name I heard was Google, again, at Park Tower. Um, I've heard that they're looking at that base part of it, and... That's, you, you know, said that's, uh, Blanca, that's around 300 or so? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, nothing signed, but I've heard there's interest. And I think the brokers told you uh, earlier this year that they expected the Fortune 500 tech company to take most of the hmm. tower, right? So, right. But that was, well, they 
that was before Facebook and everybody before, yeah. Dropbox and everybody started signing leases. <laughs> I mean, Apple's not does not have a big footprint in San Francisco. Yeah. I don't know if they need to because they have that weird spaceship. spaceship. Yeah, <laughs> I only yeah, call mean, it weird because it's super suburban and it's kind of the anti urban office model. And <laughs> well, did you hear <laughs> about the pizza box? At the, the, so, you know how Apple obviously is all into designing the best way to do things. So they actually pa- patented their own pizza box for their um, for their cafeteria. Oh, and it's like a little clamshell design. I just heard there was more parking space than office space. Really? Because Cupertino makes them fill with a lot of parking. Hmm. So that's all. all right. So let's go back to Dropbox. Um, so what's the timeline for the move? And are they going to still keep their uh, existing headquarters at 333? brand. And I, I think that lease was assigned not too long ago, too. Yeah, so they said kind of late next year. Um, and it's not really clear what will happen. Um, I've actually heard that they might kind of move out of that space, maybe sublease it, or even give it back to Kilroy, because they own, Kilroy is the same landlord for the exchange and that other building. But yeah, they're uh, preparing an IPO, supposedly. You know, that's been kind of the chatter. And I guess businesses seems pretty strong for them. So um, they expect to hire, you know, they have over, I think, maybe 100 listings on their website for jobs here. So maybe this is kind of a, a little bit more a question for our biotech reporter, Ron Ludy, but the exchange was kind of advertised as, you know, this really high-end biotech facility with, you know, the, the kind of specifications needed to house a, a major biotech here in San Francisco. What is the fact that, you know, there wasn't a biotech uh, tenant say for, I guess, the industry's interest in, in San Francisco as possibly, um, you know, a major destination? Well, San, you know, South San Francisco is considered the big biotech hub of the Bay Area. And Mission Bay, you know, has a sizable presence of biotech. Uh, UCSF is a huge tenant in Mission Bay as well. But, um, you know, it, every time a non-biotech tenant goes into Mission Bay, it's kind of like a jab at the biotech industry. Hmm. Like, you know, Mission Bay, I think, was sort of envisioned as, you know, San Francisco's biotech hub. With the UCSF and and everything. Yeah, and, you know, very science, life science oriented. And there definitely is a lot of that there. But you've definitely seen other uses. I mean, Old Navy is a huge tenant in Mission Bay, the Warriors are going into Mission Bay. Now you have Dropbox. So it's just played out a little differently than I think people thought. And um, and because biotech is so specific, and it actually is really hard to develop new biotech space. In, it's not hard in, unless you have tons of money, but it's more <laughs> of like capital intensive, I guess, because from covering South San Francisco, what happens is, these biotech companies, like, they they don't have as much lead time as a t- typical office tenant. So they're like, we need to move into, you know, 500,000 square feet, like, in six months mm-hmm, or something. Mm-hmm. So they're not, like, signing, you know, a deal a few years ahead of, of when something gets built. So that's kind of, like, why if you're going to build a spec building, it's hard to do it for biotech. So anyway, I mean, it is kind of like again, sort of like a blow to biotech. But, you know, if Dropbox is there and is willing to do the deal, like as a landlord, you know, you're going to go with <laughs> with whoever's willing to commit. So mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'd heard, I think, at least two years of rumors for, you know, is it biotech, is it tech, you know, is it multiple tenants, is it one tenant? Um, and Kilroy had spent, I think, extra 
millions of dollars to make it you know, lab space if they didn't want it, and ultimately they didn't. But you know, in the future, maybe you know, depending on where Dropbox goes, maybe that space will be yeah. Maybe maybe the they'll, they'll end up using maybe it. Sublease some of it, but yeah. Okay, so the second topic we have to bring up is the Bay Area's bid for HQ2, um, another tech company, a giant possible development, the proposed corporate headquarters for for Amazon, and that has garnered more than 200 bids um, from across North America with the general consensus of, I guess, feeling of being thirsty for this, um, you know, various, uh, you know, public letters. Jobs. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, there's a promise of 50,000 jobs, five, $5 billion, oh, yeah, dollars, yeah with a B. Um, you even have, like, communities like Little Rock, um, actually breaking up with Amazon in in the pages of major newspapers. Oh, did you see their YouTube video? I did not. What was that? Well, it's like people from Little Rock kind of saying, "It's not, it's not you, it's me." <laughs> and we we like our low traffic streets. We like being able to find parking. We like our affordable housing. You know, I gotta say, it's a pretty <laughs> smart way to gain some publicity for your uh, for your city, especially you know in, in the wake of there's over 200 of these bids, and so it's hard for everybody to keep track of all of them. But um, so well, let's talk about the Bay Area bid, and specifically, was there anything surprising to you about kind of the proposal they they set forward, other than the fact that um, it showed a regionalism we're not really actually used to seeing here? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of. Unusual in that it's seven different cities, um, five kind of primary cities and then two secondary ones. Um, and it's almost, you know, every single big project we've covered in the Bay Area that's at all, you know, kind of prior along. So that was kind of interesting. And the bid says, you know, to Amazon, you know, really consider dispersing as opposed to concentrating in one area, which I don't think is really the model they've been using. Like in Seattle, they're all sort of in South Lake Union. They're not, you know, stretching all over that region. Um, so that was kind of unusual. And, uh, you know, they said no tax breaks will be coming from any of the cities. But uh, the California state legislature said maybe you know, there might be some sort of state level subsidies for Amazon. So why don't we do a thing that I learned in summer camp, a roses and thorns, you know, one good thing, one bad thing about the bid, a pro and con about Amazon possibly moving to the Bay Area. Why don't you start with the pro, Roland? And I know that uh, Blanca, you'd probably want to follow up with a con. So, <laughs> um. as a Washington native, uh, <laughs> well, I mean the the pro would definitely be fifty thousand jobs. I mean, you know, the Bay Area has seen a record high job growth, but you know, for a city like Richmond, which is part of the bid, that would be transformative. I mean, that would really you know, potentially give a lot of opportunity to residents who live there and kind of around the area. So I think you know, that's probably the main thing. Like every city is saying, like fifty thousand new jobs, like well-paying, you know, kind of fast-growing jobs. That's you know, in a fast-growing sector. That's pretty exciting, I think, for a lot of cities. Well, okay. So my con will be I disagree with you because <laughs> people in Richmond, um, like, it's not just jobs. It's really high-tech, um, very specific types of jobs. So a reason for Amazon to come here would be to take advantage of the existing tech talent pool. And if you're living in Richmond and you need a job, you know, there's already a lot of tech companies you could work for if you have the skills. So they're looking for very specific skills. So it's not like they're just, these are like, you know, it's not like a Maytag factory where anybody mm -hmm. can get a job. You know, it's, it's, it's different. So I think that's a big 
question here is they need a certain type of talent pool and the Bay Area is already super competitive for that. So, I mean, that's just like Seattle. Seattle's very competitive for that type of talent. They're competing with Microsoft, with like Boeing, with everybody else who hires engineers or software people. So um, I, you know, people keep saying that Amazon will never come here because of California's high, you know, cost of doing business and the fact that they've, cities have said we're not going to roll out a bunch of tax incentives for you so um so even though i think it's great that the cities got together and they're like look at all this space we have and we're gonna work together and we could you know um you know maybe there's other employers who would take advantage of that hmm. but um and it just kind of shows you how much space is available that can be developed for future jobs um i just i don't know what amazon's thinking and I feel like it's really hard to get in their heads. And, um, you know, do they want to go somewhere where there's a cheap cost of living and cheap cost of doing business? And that's not the Bay Area. <laughs> and, you know, would they go to, like, a Detroit where, you know, they don't have probably the tech talent base? I mean, you have the University of Michigan, but I don't know if it's, you know, they're going to be churning out mm -hmm. enough software engineers. I mean, that's a big problem in Seattle. Like, the University of Washington has a great computer science program doesn't churn out enough people. Yeah, 50,000 so, is, you know. Yeah, they churn out like 2,400 graduates a year or something mm -hmm. like that, and it's oversubscribed. So that's the point is, I guess my point is, you know, they're going to have a hard time finding the tech talent that they want. So wherever they go, that's probably going to be imported from somewhere else, whether it's another part of the country or another part of the world. Yeah, and I mean, we should note Amazon is already growing here. Um, they signed 180,000 square foot lease in San Francisco a few months ago. Um, they signed a bunch of big deals in the uh, peninsula as well. And also, I mean, if we're talking kind of blue-collar jobs, they are also doing warehouses and distribution centers already. Mm -hmm. um, and you should also shout out to our national team for uh, the special Amazon Effect report that just came out a couple weeks ago. Check we'll link to too. it in our description. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I mean, as far as, you know, where the jobs will go, I mean, there's also this idea that if you do build a new office, say in Richmond again, that'll lead to demand for retail, for, for um, shopping, for food. So that could lead to kind of indirect you know, jobs being supported that way, which has kind of been the argument, I think, for, you know. Just general know, economic development. Yeah, just like GDP growth, which people say, like, that's how this tech boom has benefited other people who are in tech. Um, so I guess we don't really know <laughs> yeah. yet. I mean, the betting um, sites are all saying the betting sites are saying like Atlanta, Austin, right? Atlanta, Austin, Atlanta. Um, I don't know. Do you guys have a bet? If, if you're gonna say, I, I, I'm gonna say Austin. I'm going with Austin. I, I like the synergy with Whole Foods. Um, I'm with you. I think it's Austin has a lot of odds in their favor. I would say Atlanta because they do have. They're like, I think, like the biggest airport hub, and they also have number of schools like Emory and the housing is pretty affordable yeah there. it's I mean, pretty more cheap, affordable yeah. than Austin um, okay so we'll update you when uh, HQ2 is chosen and um, we'll figure out uh, what the bet actually wins at that point too <laughs> So our main topic for today is something that seems to be central for nearly every single housing debate we've seen in the Bay Area, affordable housing. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, right? If residents can't afford rising housing prices, build cheaper housing for them. But as it turns out, as in most things, 
reality is a little bit more complicated. I mean, let's start with the term itself, guys. Affordable housing, what does that mean in a technical or, or legal sense? Legally, it means that the rent cannot exceed more than 30% of the tenant's income. And there are different brackets. So it's basically the pricing will be based on area median income, which is basically what is the median income for this you know, certain... Uh, it's usually at a county level, so it would be all of San Francisco. So 100% median income for one person in San Francisco is about $70,000 a year in salary. Um, so we're seeing a lot of projects at like 50% AMI, which is... So you're making $35,000 a year. That means you qualify for this unit, and your rent would be no more than you know about $12,000 for the year. That's the legal term, and the government basically oversees eligibility, and um, because there's so much demand, and we'll talk about this, there's usually a lottery held mm-hmm. where you, know, you just throw in your, your application and hope you get picked. And it's usually like one out of every 10 people get picked. I think it's even less than that because yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you we'll hear about a project that with like 90 units and they get like 2,000 applications. Yeah. So in general, I mean, what it, when, when I think of affordable housing, what I think of is it's subsidized, which means that there's some public money usually grants um, from city, state, federal government. There's tax credit financing. Companies will buy tax credits to reduce their tax burden and that mm-hmm. money then goes to pay for housing. Yeah. So basically, it's it's housing that's financed not through your traditional, you know, um, for the purposes of making money. You know, you get a lot of grants and, and other public loans and things like that. Um, and, and so it's pretty complicated for these developers. There's a whole kind of industry of nonprofit developers. So they, they have to mishmash the kind of general profit incentive and motive with these grants? Is that Well, they're financing? pretty much all nonprofits. And okay. they have yeah. to, there's, there's no profit motive. Yeah. I mean, there's basically usually a capital stack where you use, like, maybe some city money, some state money, some federal money, and then, you know, often there will also be a construction loan where there's just traditional debt on top of that. So, you know, from what I'm hearing from Bl- what Blanca's saying, it's, it's housing that's in, at least in part publicly subsidized. I think it'd be helpful if we drew a distinction from what we're considering affordable housing and what we call public housing. Well, so. I mean, when you think of public housing, you think of, you know, what people say is like, oh, the projects, the projects. right? <laughs> and like big towers or big nondescript you know, um, just mass housing developments that are all over the country. And um, in San Francisco, you have a lot of public housing projects throughout the city, Petro Hill, you know, like Western Edition. Um, and a lot of those are getting rebuilt with through federal programs and city programs. There's the HOPE SF program that has spurred a lot of rebuilding of these um housing projects because they're old, they're falling apart, they're just not very, you know, they just need to be modernized for people. But the federal government isn't really building new public housing. So what is getting built that would be, you know, subsidized, set aside for low-income people is going to be built by, like, a nonprofit developer, who is, which is essentially, like, a private nonprofit. So it's it's not like the federal government's like, oh, hey, we're going to come into San Francisco and we're going to build some housing for the low-income people. Like, that doesn't really happen anymore. And we should note the nonprofits are often partnering with the city and that the city may give them public land to build this, this affordable housing on. Um, you know, they may definitely be involved in kind of the financing aspect of it. 
So I think a lot of them would consider the city to be you know, a partner and also other cities around the Bay Area. Could you explain a little bit more about the Section 8 housing vouchers and what, what does that mean and how does that tie into it? So that's different. It's a different program in that instead of building new housing, you're giving basically rent subsidies to low-income tenants, and you use those for you know, basically just any housing that is in the program. So it isn't new housing that's being built to be affordable. It's actually just uh, the government helping tenants pay their rent um, at you know, basically existing buildings that are enrolling in this. So Section 8 is federally funded, and it's a program you know, where you are given money to go rent an apartment that could be on the private market, so just any eligible apartment. apartment. So that could be either publicly subsidized or non-publicly subsidized apartments? It's usually non-publicly subsidized, mm-hmm. I think. Um, so it's like if you see an apartment um, for rent and you have Section 8, then you can go to the landlord and say, um, I'm going to use my Section 8 voucher to pay for this apartment or at least part of it. But some landlords are allowed to not take Section 8 tenants. And some of that is because you have to have a a unit that's eligible and has to meet certain criteria. And so some landlords don't necessarily want to go through all that, so they don't accept Section 8. But it's, it's actually seen as discriminatory in some cases where landlords are turning away Section 8 people. Um, but Section 8 is really hard to get. Um, there's a stat that only one in five eligible families in the U.S. actually receive a Section 8 voucher because usually I think it's administered through like a local entity like a city, and so they might only have a certain pool of money. If those vouchers are, are already taken up, then you get on a waiting list and you, you could spend years waiting for your voucher, even if you're eligible. So that's a big problem and um, that people have mentioned, you know, leading, you know, that contributes to the housing crisis, that contributes to the homeless um, problem that we have, especially in big cities. You know, Section A is actually shown as one of the most effective deterrents to homelessness. Hmm. But again, it's just not widely used or it's not reaching all of the eligible people, and that's basically a funding issue. So can we kind of draw a direct line from the decline of some of these federally funded projects like you know public housing and Section 8 into what we're seeing as quote-unquote affordable housing, publicly subsidized, private, public, almost partnerships in, in some cases? Or is that is that not that direct of a... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's a direct connection. What do you? I mean, mean, there's definitely because of the Great Recession, you saw federal funding really drop off, um, as well as state funding, and there's definitely, I'd say, been a rise in these ideas where you know private developers will come in, uh, for-profit developers, and then some of their profits will be kind of used be used to subsidize affordable housing. Okay, so you kind of talked a, a little bit, Roland, about you know private developers partnering with nonprofits. Um, in order to, you know, subsidize some of that. Could you kind of give an example of what that means and, and how that ties into what's called, you know, inclusionary housing policy? Sure. So in a lot of the kind of newer, kind of new development centers of San Francisco, um, you'll see nonprofits and for-profits kind of partnering. So, for example, in Transbay, uh, you know, there are basically these market-rated towers, and then next to them you might see affordable housing, uh, developments, or sometimes it's in the same building, you'll have market rate and affordable. And so the idea is that you know the city changed, for example, that area to allow higher buildings, taller buildings, um, and in exchange, they have to provide more affordable housing, which means new housing that's new construction, but um, is 
you know, the rents are capped at 30% of the tenant's income. So a certain percentage of those units have to be, quote unquote, affordable. Right. And that's part of basically the development agreement that, you know, whoever decides to build on the land signs and they'll often partner with you know, a nonprofit to kind of manage and, you know, maybe get other financing sources as well. You know, n- now there's even like city policy that is requiring some developers to include um, affordable housing. It, has this kind of changed the housing crisis in, in any real sense? I know affordable housing obviously is meant to support low and median income people, but has enough of this been built to actually help a significant portion of those people or, or not? I think in San Francisco, yes, within the city limits, because I had a conversation with Todd David, who runs SF Hack, the San Francisco Housing Action Coalition. So basically, in San Francisco, if you look at the income spectrum, the number of low-income families on like the lowest side has actually maintained, and the highest-income families have increased. So it's really middle-income people who are leaving. And one of the reasons that low-income families haven't been able to stay in San Francisco is because we've built more of the subsidized housing. And, and there has been significant numbers of that built in the past few years. But... If you look at the region of the Bay Area, that there is definitely a lack of building of affordable housing because it's basically like cities that have money or have a mechanism for funding it, um, and that's a whole another conversation. <laughs> um, but basically, it's kind of like some cities are just more proactive than others, and you have cities that actually have funding in that is, you know, set aside or comes in through some sort of mechanism that's for affordable housing and they don't spend it. And that's happened on in peninsula cities especially. Menlo Park is one. <laughs> um, you know, Palo Alto, they don't, they've had one affordable housing project built like in the last five years, and it was like 90 units. So city, and, and these are affluent cities, and so I call them out because, you know, they, they do have a tax base and and they're just, you know, choosing to use it for other things or, or they're, you know, a lot of cities, like, don't have inclusionary policies. You know, Oakland for many years did not have one. I think their policy is, like, what, two years it's old? It's not really inclusionary either. They require a fee where basically for every marker unit you build now, you have to pay, you know, a few thousand dollars. And that goes into a that fund. That money will go to the city to build a fund okay. housing. What's the, you know bigger picture, what's the uh, goal for all this housing? And, and you know, you, you mentioned um, middle-income people being forced out of the city. Um, what is the city or the region trying to do to, to help them specifically? Well, before we can answer that question, you know, in detail, I mean, the, the question is, what do we want as a society in terms of housing? And, and this is a big question that we're seeing come up a lot in just in terms of any housing discussion is, you know, as a society or as a city, do we want a mix of incomes? And some people would say yes, because you need different types of people that work at different jobs. You need people that are going to be your barista and people are going to be your software engineer and your doctors and whatever. And so, so there's that perspective that you want a community where a variety of people can afford to live there. And if that means subsidizing the low end, then some communities are willing to do that. But then there's this other perspective that I think is is kind of maybe 
gaining more traction, which is that, well, hey, if I have to pay my rent and I have to work, then everybody else should do the same. Like every, you know, kind of your own bootstraps type of mentality. And why should the government be helping certain people? And, and so these are really big kind of philosophical, you know, questions. And, and some would argue, well, you know, if we can't take care of people at the bottom as a rich country or a country with resources, like, then who are we, right? Like, if we're always leaving people to, like, um, fend for themselves, then that's why you have tent encampments under the freeway. So these are – I bring this up because I think this – there's these underlying issues that really fuel these policy debates that fuel, you know, even land use debates, like should we allow more housing in certain areas if that's going to help increase the housing stock? Or, you know, there's this famous case that we've written about with Palo Alto, where in 2012, the residents overturned the approval of a senior housing development because you know they they said they didn't want the density and they didn't want the traffic even though it was it was approved so it met code and they went to the ballot and they overturned it and that is sort of seen as like this example of an affluent city saying we don't want to house low-income people and now that same piece of land is like you know it's been turned into single family homes i think it was like 16 single family homes it's like do you want million dollar homes or do you want to house poor seniors? These are definitely questions that come up all the time. And I think that there's really this tension between is real estate an investment or is it like a public necessity that everyone deserves to have access to? And you know, home ownership is the biggest source of capital and wealth for most people. And yet it's also, you know, just having a home is you know what you need to do to live. So you know the question is do we just want new projects to be paying the bulk of these fees to fund this affordable housing or you know should the entire society be helping to pay for it because the argument is that having a diverse economy and diverse housing options helps everyone yeah i think it's it's a really you know it's a really complex question and also a lot of the decisions are made at the neighborhood level whereas you know we're seeing this opposition to low income housing I mean, we've all watched our fair share of local community meetings, and when you hear the debate around affordable housing, it is often a coded sort of debate. It's talking about changing the quote-unquote nature of our community and whether that comes with, you know, um, some sort of racial or economic context, socioeconomic context. So I think when we talk about the affordable housing, and it's easy to talk a little bit about kind of the wonk behind it, you know, kind of the policies, um, but there's a real story there about you know, what it actually means. And affordable housing has, I think, has become a totem in a lot of communities, um, explaining what they want to see for themselves and their families, um, rather than just a kind of debate of whether to approve a project or not. It symbolizes something larger, I think. Yeah, and I mean, the reality is most of the new affordable housing, I mean, almost all of it is going downtown or kind of on the southern waterfront. You know, there's I think been barely any affordable housing built in decades. Um, the west side of San Francisco, the Sunset, the Richmond, or the north side, um, like the Marina and Pacific Heights. And I mean, I think part of that has to do with politics. These are, you know, powerful neighborhood groups who elect their public officials, the board of supervisors. And if they don't want, you know, a bigger project with more affordable units, there probably won't be one built. So, for example, right now in Forest Hill, there's this again 100 percent. I think it's senior housing again, and people there are fighting it because they think it's too tall. 
So, you know, there's definitely a lot of just financing issues um, and challenges and just getting these things built, but also there's a lot of political complexities and you know, challenges as well. So there's at least some um, attention being paid on the issue from the state legislature. They recently passed um, a bond measure that would raise $4 billion for affordable housing given approval by um, the voters at the ballot. Um, but one of the issues Governor Brown had in tentatively supporting similar measures is the fact that uh, affordable housing is so expensive to build. So can you kind of explain a little bit why affordable housing, even though it's supposed to be publicly subsidized, why is it so hard to build? Well, as we were saying earlier, you have to use a lot of funding sources and, you know, it's just complicated um, to get all those ducks in a row basically but what we're seeing especially in the bay area is because land is so expensive that if a developer has to buy the land or you know pay for a ground lease or something of that sort that really adds to the cost and then also in california um, to get some of those tax credits and some of that funding you have to present a, a project that might have a lot of amenities and support services like computer lab for kids to do their homework mm-hmm. or a health center for the residents um, or even you know social workers on site and things like that. And, and that's great because that can, you know, supportive housing has been shown to really help the residents um, in these developments, but it can also add to the cost. And um, so City Lab, which is a kind of portal from the Atlantic, they just did an article recently that mentioned a project in Emeryville that is $64 million um, for 84 units, which breaks down to about $744,000 per unit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just to build that unit, that's what that costs. So you can kind of wonder, well, that's a lot of money. like. If we're going to take, you know, taxpayer money, and that's not all taxpayer money um, necessarily, but you could argue, like, couldn't you just give people, you know, $300,000 and tell them to put a down payment on a house or something? Or, you know, and Governor Brown has questioned, like, we're going to, you know, we're beefing up this public spending on this, but you're getting fewer units for the same amount of money than, you know, five, ten years ago, and that's a big concern because you want more bang for your buck, essentially. I mean... Um, or, or there's that argument, right? So that's a big concern. Like, how do you get these costs down? Some of it is construction costs, which are going up for all kinds of projects. Some of it is land. Some of it is the supportive services. And I don't know. It's tough because, you know, some of it is that you're, you know, like we're saying, you're putting a lot of this housing, like, in the urban areas where it's more expensive to build. Mm -hmm. So some people would say, well, why don't you put more of this housing, you know, in in less expensive parts of the state? So these, again, these are all big questions. I don't necessarily know the answer, but when you see these numbers of like, you know, more than $500,000 to build a unit, you kind of start wondering like- That's quote unquote affordable. Right. Yeah. Yeah, is that, A, is it sustainable? B, is it the best use of the the funding? Yeah, smartest use of the money. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think the contrast is that instead of these kind of huge anonymous public housing projects, you have these new affordable projects that are pretty much the exact same as market rate units, and they cost pretty similarly too. Like similar and, architects and yeah. design. And um, often, I mean, almost always in San Francisco, union labor, which mm-hmm. does add costs. Um, you know, similar materials, maybe fewer amenities, but you know, pretty much costs 
the same as market rate housing. Um, but the difference is instead of renting for $3,000 a month or something, it's under 1000 So that gap has to be paid for you know, with a lot of taxpayer money. So I think that's been a big challenge for the city, just, you know, in the region, costs are going up for everything. And while there has been, you know, some additional funding passed at state level, uh, a lot of it was lost with the um, shuttering of redevelopment agencies in, I think it was 2014, and that eliminated a lot of the state subsidy. And redevelopment is like super wonky. <laughs> I mean, I'll try to explain it in the least wonky yeah, way. Let's, let's... In this, But basically, if you had like a blighted property in your city, like a vacant storefront or something, or just, you know, just an empty lot that nobody was using, either the city's going to buy that land and then build something on it or buy it and then sell it to someone who will build something on it, like let's say a new office building. So you put a new office building on a formerly vacant piece of land, the value of the land goes up, right? And so you're, the value, the, the amount of revenue you're taking in from taxes goes up. So in the past, cities in California were allowed to keep that difference. It's called tax increment um, financing. And so, so it was an incentive to do something with blighted properties and for cities to say, we're going to buy these sites from private owners or you know, take them over through some mechanism. And, and the incentive was that you know, as a city, you would increase your tax base. And then you could take some of that money um, and pay for affordable housing or, or community benefits like parks and other things you wanted to pay for. And um, so Governor Brown needed to balance the budget a few years ago and said, you know, instead of letting all these cities keep this extra tax revenue, the state gets it now. And <laughs> basically ended that program that had existed for decades and was a huge source of funding for affordable housing. That was good. So every time we write about a story that has mentioned redevelopment, it's like, I should I, I wish I could write that whole thing, but it's like, we don't have the space yeah. or the time or patience. <laughs> <laughs> Along with affordable housing, a well-known program that kind of keeps um, housing affordable is rent control. Can you kind of draw some distinctions between the two programs and, and why one may have um, advantages over, over the other? So rent control applies to market rate housing. Uh, generally, these are older units uh, built before, before uh, the 1980s. Rent control means that you can only raise the rent a couple percentages a year, basically the, the increase in inflation. However, if a tenant moves out, uh, you can actually increase the rent to market rate, and that's called vacancy decontrol. So rent control is not allowed in new buildings. Um, because of this law that was passed in the 1980s called Costa-Hawkins. Rent-controlled units might not necessarily be affordable in that you could have a $3,000 a month rent-controlled apartment, but the law says that that rent cannot go up more than about 1% or 2% each year. But the people in those units can make whatever amount of money, right? Yeah, it doesn't depend yeah, on your income. Exactly. And we saw uh, a number of ballot measures last year to expand rent-control, and in some cities that actually... They adopted new rent control, but in others, uh, it failed. And so advocates will say that this is a way to stabilize the rent, make it certain, kind of prevent these giant rent increases for vulnerable people like the elderly um, or low-income people. Um, but on the other hand, people who are against rent control will say, if you have rent control, you're actually making it harder for everyone else who isn't in rent control to find housing because people in rent control will just stay there. You know, they could even just like rent it out to other tenants and live somewhere else, which is, you know, that's happened. Um, it's illegal, but it happens. And 
you know, it basically locks up more housing units and prevents them from turning over as much. Right. And the other thing is it's not regulated, really, because anybody could rent a rent control apartment. You could be a lawyer making six figures and mm-hmm. have a rent controlled apartment in San Francisco. And so what you're like, you know what? Good for you, right? Like <laughs> you're lucky. But if you're trying to solve a housing crisis, then rent control is not a policy that really does that. And I can see why people would get behind it because if you have people getting evicted or not being able to afford a 25% or 50% or 100% hike in their rent, I mean, that's, you know, that's when displacement starts happening. And so I can see why people support that policy, but it's a blunt object type policy where, you know, it doesn't really necessarily help the people at the bottom who need housing. So it's more of an anti-displacement strategy. And that's why when you have big spikes in the market, you see a lot of interest in rent control coming back. Yeah, it's really just treating the symptom, the housing crisis, which is high rents, as opposed to the root, which is really low supply. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, we kind of talked about nonprofits and for-profits partnering on projects to get affordable housing built. Um, now, is there any kind of tension um, in between those those two groups sometimes? I think that the broader tension is that if you're a housing developer in the Bay Area, sites are limited. So, and a lot of times, nonprofit and for-profit developers are competing for the same land because, you know, nonprofit developers want sites near transit, near job centers, near retail, near schools, things like that. The same real estate considerations as anybody else. Right, exactly. So they they're going after the same land a lot of times or if if like the city owns land and they want to bring it make it available for development, you know, the, you know, maybe you could argue, oh, well it makes more sense for the city to sell it to a private developer and bring in more money but maybe they're going to set it aside for affordable housing. So there is just that that conflict over land. But, um, you know, sometimes you have groups like the Mission Economic Development Agency, which was more of a social services nonprofit for a long time. They have recently, a few years ago, started their own kind of real estate department to develop housing because they realized that was such a big need in the community, in the mission, with the predominantly Latino community. And for a while, some activists were saying 100% affordable in the mission or nothing for any new projects. And Mita kind of got behind that a little bit, and they've since kind of walked away from that. But basically, the way they explained it was that if you strive for 100% affordable, then you might end up with something in the middle. More than the the minimum. Right, more than the minimum. But, you know, as Roland was saying earlier, like private development market rate, they have to pay fees that then supports affordable housing. So it's this tricky balance where you want – in in San Francisco, you want to build market rate because then you will have funding for the affordable. And but then that's taking up the land that could possibly be used for affordable. Well, I mean, because what, what, what we've seen is that developers a lot of times will buy a site and say, we're going to put you know, the market rate on this section and this other part of it goes to affordable or here's this other site somewhere else that I'm giving to the city for affordable housing. So the reason that the 100% or nothing you know, call for action was problematic is because well, yeah, 100% affordable is great. How are you going to pay for it, 
right? And why is it just in the mission that you would ha do that, right? Like why, if you're gonna have a policy for affordable housing, it should be, you know, you could also argue it should be citywide. You know, like why doesn't the Sunset have more affordable housing? Because they block it and they don't care about funding it. So again, That's these are the all like- politics and the policy yeah. collide. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's, there's some tension there. Um, but I think at the same time, you know, the broader goal is to increase housing supply in a housing-constrained market, which is supposed to help everybody. Yeah, another example, um, just by the Tenderloin and Mid-Market area, we saw Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corp., which is a you know, very well-established nonprofit, actually appeal a project that was on market rate from Shorenstein, and basically they wanted uh, more affordable housing for lower-income people. And so, you know, even though these two groups are basically one funds the other one, the market rate, a developer will fund the nonprofit, you had this real clash where, you know, this nonprofit did not support this other uh, market rate project. It's almost like the tension is not between the developers, but between the community. Uh -huh. Because the, I think there definitely is this perceived competition. Like, if you are building a luxury condo tower that is taking something from low-income people who can't afford it. I mean, we hear that sort of correlation all the time, even though it's not really accurate. But, you know, you could also argue that imposing affordable fees on market rate makes all housing more expensive. Because if, let's say you're going to build 100 condos, right? And then now you have to pay, you know, it's like 25% affordable housing fee, right? Either on-site or in-lieu fees, whatever. However you decide to pay for that. So basically you're just making the cost of building housing more expensive for whoever ends up living in that condo building. So there is kind of this broader question of like, if you're buying your home, now you're gonna have to pay for somebody else to have a home. Yeah, so yeah. I, th I think that goes back to your uh, earlier point where you were talking about kind of the philosophy of, um, you know, should, should you be paying for other people to live in the same community in the same sort of almost socioeconomic situation as you when it comes to a rent and housing. Um, and I think you recently went to a housing panel um, or housing forum kind of talking a little bit about affordable housing in the future. Um, what were some of the insights that you gleaned from that? What were some of the people who actually work in the field saying about that sort of conflict? Well, so it was the Nonprofit Housing Association, um, which brought together basically um, all non a lot of nonprofit developers from throughout the state of California. And it was just, I think there was more than 800 people that gathered in San Francisco for this conference. And they had this keynote speaker um, who was kind of talking about the need to change the narrative about affordable housing, that in the past people thought, well, you know what, if, if we create awareness, if people understood the need for affordable housing, then they would support it. Right. I mean, it's like we're saying, like every time you have a project that opens, you know, you'll have thousands of applications for maybe 100 units. Right. So clearly there's demand for this subsidized housing. But that doesn't really get sympathy from the broader public because the broader public is saying, well, hey, I went to college and I got my nine to five job and now I, you know, can afford to live in San Rafael or Concord or wherever it is. Right. So why can't you do the same? So her point was that 
that argument just isn't working. It's not resonating with people. You have to show them, like, why would the suburban mom in Danville care if, you know, some low-income family can afford to live in her city or not? And I don't know the answer to that necessarily, but it's kind of like the broader question. So it's really about talking up and boosting the positives of kind of having a mixed-income community rather than just playing to the sort of general feeling of, you know, everybody deserves quote-unquote housing. Well, yes, and the deserves question is very important because some people see housing as a reward for your hard work and effort and whatever job you choose to have. And and that, I think, is maybe some flawed thinking, um, and that was a perspective I got from this conference, was that housing is is a base, you know, like if you have stable housing, you will succeed in other areas of your life versus it being the other way around. And as a society, it's like, do we want less crime? Do we want less homeless people in our cities? Mm -hmm. Do we want, um, you know, to reduce all these societal ills? And, you know, starting with stable housing is a way to do that. So there is definitely that argument. And that is the narrative that this speaker was saying is not out there. As far as the idea of making new projects pay fees and using that to fund affordable housing, I mean, I think the question is, I mean, the reason it's done is because cities have the power to do that because they're they're approving these projects. But, you know, I think there is a real question, like, would a more equitable way of funding affordable housing be, you know, taxing everyone that owns property and is benefiting from, you know, these rising... The benefits of home ownership, yeah. Even, you know, tax commercial employers who are, you know, putting pressure on housing demand by hiring more people... I mean, maybe some of those like corporate taxes should go into affordable housing, um, you know, as opposed to just taxing one segment of the, or not taxing, but requiring fees in one segment of the population. I mean, uh, developers will say like, why are you taxing like the price of bread in a famine or something? Or why are you making, like, why don't you make like car dealerships, like make a, a certain number of cars affordable? We don't do that. But I think it's, it's because housing, you know, it, it kind of benefits from these, in place infrastructure things that the city already has like parks, transit, you know, electricity, power line, like so it's a it's a bigger thing, obviously. It's different from those other things. But I think the real unresolved question is like what is the best way to, you know, allow everyone to have access to some sort of housing? You know, are we gonna treat it as an investment first and foremost or, or as a public a human good, right? yeah. A human right. And honestly I think, you know, just looking at what prices are now, it's Mostly an investment is the approach that society has taken. Thank you for listening to the San Francisco Business Times Structures podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Kevin B. Trong, at Roland Lee SF, and at Blanca Rights. You can also email us at sanfrancisco at bizjournals.com. You can also follow our coverage online at sanfranciscobusinesstimes.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash sfbusinesstimes. We really appreciate all your feedback, so please keep coming with tips, suggestions for guests, rants, and critiques. And please, an extra request to rate us on iTunes. It really helps us to get the podcast out to more listeners. Also, subscribe. (laughs) That would really help too. Um, Thanks again for listening. And please subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes if you're interested in getting the latest in Bay Area real estate news straight into your earphones.